Welcome to Radio Read Along, a podcast for the whole family, featuring dramatic, word for word readings of classic stories for all ages. In today's episode, Megan Andrews reads chapters 15 and 16 of Peter Pan by J.M. Barry. You may follow along in your own copy of the story, or sit back, relax, and let your mind's eye do the work. Chapter 15 Cook or Me This Time Odd things happen to all of us on our way through life without our noticing for a time that they have happened. Thus, to take an instance, we suddenly discover that we have been deaf in one ear for we do not know how long, but say, half an hour. Now such an experience had come that night to Peter. When last we saw him, he was stealing across the island with one finger to his lips and his dagger at the ready. He had seen the crocodile pass by without noticing anything peculiar about it, but by and by he remembered that it had not been ticking. At first he thought this eerie, but soon concluded, rightly, that the clock had run down. Without giving a thought to what might be the feelings of a fellow creature thus abruptly deprived of its closest companion, Peter began to consider how he could turn the catastrophe to his own use, and he decided to tick so that wild beasts should believe he was the crocodile and let him pass unmolested. He ticked superbly, but with one unforeseen result. The crocodile was among those who heard the sound, and it followed him, though whether with the purpose of regaining what it had lost, or merely as a friend, under the belief that it was again ticking itself, will never be certainly known, for, like slaves to a fixed idea, it was a stupid beast." Peter reached the shore without mishap, and went straight on, his legs encountering the water as if quite unaware that they had entered a new element. Thus many animals pass from land to water, but no other human of whom I know. As he swam, he had but one thought, hook or me this time. He had ticked so long that he now went on ticking without knowing that he was doing it. Had he known he would have stopped, for to board the brig by help of the tick— though an ingenious idea had not occurred to him. On the contrary, he thought he'd scaled her side as noiseless as a mouse, and he was amazed to see the pirates cowering from him, with Hook in their midst as abject as if he had heard the crocodile. (gasps) The crocodile! No sooner did Peter remember it than he heard the ticking. At first he thought the sound did come from the crocodile, and he looked behind him swiftly. Then he realized that he was doing it himself, and in a flash he understood the situation. How clever of me, he thought at once, and signed to the boys not to burst into applause. It was at this moment that Ed Tente, the quartermaster, emerged from the forecastle and came along the deck. Now, reader, time what happened by your watch. Peter struck true and deep. John clapped his hands on the ill-fated pirate's mouth to stifle the dying groan. He fell forward. Four boys caught him to prevent the thud. Peter gave the signal, and the carrion was cast overboard. There was a splash, and then silence. How long has it taken? One. Slightly had begun to count. None too soon, Peter, every inch of him on tiptoe, vanished into the cabin for more than one pirate was screwing up his courage to look around. They could hear each other's distressed breathing now, which showed them that the more terrible sound had passed. "'It's gone, Captain,' Smee said, wiping off his spectacles. 
all still again. Slowly, Hook let his head emerge from his ruff and listened so intently that he could have caught the echo of the tick. There was not a sound, and he drew himself up firmly to his full height. Then here's to Johnny Plank, he cried brazenly, hating the boys more than ever because they had seen him unbend. He broke into the villainous ditty. Yo ho, yo ho, the frisky plank you walks along it so, till it goes down and you goes down to Davy Jones below. To terrorize the prisoners the more, though with a certain loss of dignity, he danced along an imaginary plank, grimacing at them as he sang. And when he finished, he cried, Do you want a touch of the cat of nine tails before you walk the plank? At that, they fell on their knees. No, no! They cried so piteously that every pirate smiled. Fetch the cat, Jukes, said Hook. It's in the cabin. The cabin? <gasps> Peter was in the cabin. The children gazed at each other. Aye, aye, said Jukes blithely, and he strode into the cabin. They followed him with their eyes. They scarce knew that Hook had resumed his song, his dogs joining in with him. Yo-ho, yo-ho, the scratching cat, its tails are nine, you know, and when they're writ upon your back... What was the last line will never be known, for of a sudden the song was stayed by a dreadful screech from the cabin. It wailed through the ship and died away. Then was heard a crowing sound, which was well understood by the boys, but to the pirates was almost more eerie than the screech. What was that? cried Hook. Two, said slightly, solemnly. The Italian, Checo, hesitated for a moment and then swung into the cabin. He tottered out, haggard. What's the matter with Bill Jukes, you dog? hissed Hook, towering over him. The matter with him is he's dead. Stabbed, replied Checo in a hollow voice. Bill Jukes dead? cried the startled pirates. The cabin's as black as a pit, Checo said, almost gibbering. But there's something terrible in there. The thing you heard crowing. The exultation of the boys, the lowering looks of the pirates, both were seen by Hook. Checo, he said in his most steely voice, go back and fetch me out that doodle-doo. Checo, bravest of the brave, cowered before his captain, crying, no, no. But Hook was purring to his claw. "'Did you say you would go, Checo?' he said, musingly. Checo went, first flinging his arms despairingly. There was no more singing. All listened now, and again came a death screech, and again a crow. No one spoke except slightly. Three, he said. Hook rallied his dogs with a gesture. "'Death and odds fish!' he thundered. "'Who's to bring me that doodle-doo?' "'Wait till Checo comes out,' growled Starkey, and the others took up the cry. "'I think I heard you volunteer, Starkey,' said Hook, purring again. "'No, by thunder!' Starkey cried. "'My Hook thinks you did,' said Hook, crossing to him. "'I wonder if it would not be advisable, Starkey, to humor the Hook.' "'I'll swing before I go in there,' replied Starkey doggedly, and again he had the support of the crew. "'Is this mutiny?' "'asked Hook more pleasantly than ever. "'Starkey's ringleader? "'Captain, mercy!' "'Starkey whimpered, all of a tremble now. 
"'Shake hands, Starkey,' said Hook, offering his claw. Starkey looked round for help, but all deserted him. As he backed up, Hook advanced, and now the red spark was in his eye. With a despairing scream, the pirate leapt upon Long Tom and precipitated himself into the sea. Four, said Slightly. "'And now,' Hook said, courteously, "'did any other gentleman say mutiny?' Seizing a lantern and raising his claw with a menacing gesture, "'I'll bring out that doodle-doo myself,' he said, and sped into the cabin. Five. How slightly longed to say it. He wetted his lips to be ready, but Hook came staggering out without his lantern. "'Something blew out the light,' he said, a little unsteadily. "'Something?' echoed Mullins. "'What of Checo?' demanded Noodler. "'He's as dead as Jukes,' said Hook shortly. His reluctance to return to the cabin impressed them all unfavorably, and the mutinous sounds again broke forth. All pirates are superstitious, and Cookson cried, "'They do say the surest sign a ship's accursed is when there's one on board more than can be accounted for!' "'I've heard,' muttered Mullins. "'He always boards the pirate craft last.' "'Had he a tail, Captain?' "'They say,' said another, looking viciously at Hook, "'that when he comes it's in the likeness of the wickedest man aboard.' "'Had he a hook, Captain?' asked Cookson insolently, "'and one after another took up the cry, "'The ship is doomed!' "'At this the children could not resist raising a cheer. "'Hook had well-nigh forgotten his prisoners, "'but as he swung round on them now his face lit up again.' "'Lads!' he cried to his crew. "'Now here's a notion. Open the cabin door and drive them in. Let them fight the doodle-doo for their lives. If they kill him, we're so much the better. If he kills them, we're none the worse.' For the last time, his dogs admired Hook, and devotedly they did his bidding. The boys, pretending to struggle, were pushed into the cabin, and the door was closed on them. "'Now listen!' cried Hook, and all listened." but not one dared to face the door. Yes, one, Wendy, who all this time had been bound to the mast. It was for neither scream nor crow that she was watching. It was for the reappearance of Peter. She had not long to wait. In the cabin he had found the thing for which he'd gone in search, the key that would free the children of their manacles, and now they all stole forth, armed with such weapons as they could find. First signing them to hide, Peter cut Wendy's bonds and then nothing could have been easier than for all of them to fly off together, but one thing barred the way, an oath, hook or me this time. So, when he had freed Wendy, he whispered for her to conceal herself with the others, and himself took her place by the mast, her cloak around him so that he should pass for her. Then he took a great breath and crowed. To the pirates, it was a voice crying that all the boys lay slain in the cabin, and they were panic-stricken. Hook tried to hearten them, but like the dogs he had made them, they showed him their fangs, and he knew that if he took his eyes off them now, they would leap at him. Lads, he said, ready to cajole or strike as need be, but never quailing for an instant. I've thought it out. There's a Jonah aboard. Aye, they snarled, a man with a hook. No, lads, no, it's the girl. Never was luck on a pirate ship with a woman on board. We'll right the ship when she's gone. 
Some of them remembered that this had been a saying of Flint's. It's worth trying, they said, doubtfully. Fling the girl overboard, cried Hook, and they made a rush at the figure in the cloak. There's none can save you now, Missy, Mullins hissed jeeringly. There's one, replied the figure. Who's that? Peter Pan, the Avenger, came the terrible answer, and as he spoke, Peter flung off his cloak. Then they all knew who t'was that had been undoing them in the cabin, and twice Hook essayed to speak, twice he failed. In that frightful moment, I think his fierce heart broke. At last he cried, Cleave him to the brisket! But without conviction. Down, boys, and at them! Peter's voice rang out, and in another moment the clash of arms was resounding through the ship. Had the pirates kept together, it is certain that they would have won, but the onset came when they were still unstrung, and they ran hither and thither, striking wildly, each thinking himself the last survivor of the crew. Man to man, they were the stronger, but they fought on the defensive only, which enabled the boys to hunt in pairs and choose their quarry. Some of the miscreants leapt into the sea. Others hid in dark recesses, where they were found by Slightly, who did not fight but ran about with a lantern, which he flashed on their faces, so that they were half-blinded and fell as an easy prey to the reeking swords of the other boys. There was little sound to be heard but the clang of weapons, an occasional screech or splash, and Slightly, monotonously counting, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven... I think all were gone when a group of savage boys surrounded Hook, who seemed to have a charmed life as he kept them at bay in that circle of fire. They had done for his dogs, but this man alone seemed to be a match for them all. Again and again they closed upon him, and again and again he hewed a clear space. He had lifted up one boy with his hook and was using him as a buckler. Then another, who had just passed his sword through Mullins, sprang into the fray. "'Put up your swords, boys!' cried the newcomer. "'This man is mine.' Thus, suddenly, Hook found himself face to face with Peter. The others drew back and formed a ring around them. For long the two enemies looked at one another, Hook shuddering slightly, and Peter with a strange smile upon his face. "'So, Pan,' said Hook at last, "'this is all your doing.' "'I, James Hook,' came the stern answer. It is all my doing. Proud, insolent youth, said Hook. Prepare to meet thy doom. Dark, sinister man, Peter answered. Have at thee. Without more words, they fell to, and for a space there was no advantage to either blade. Peter was a superb swordsman, and parried with dazzling rapidity. Ever and anon, he followed up a feint with a lunge that got past his foe's defense, but his shorter reach stood him in ill stead, and he could not drive the steel home. Hook, scarcely his inferior in brilliancy, but not quite so nimble in wrist play, forced him back by the weight of his onset, hoping suddenly to end all with a favorite thrust, taught him long ago by barbecue at Rio. But to his astonishment, he found that this thrust was turned aside again and again. Then he sought to close and give the quietus with his iron hook, which all this time had been pawing at the air. But Peter doubled under it, and lunging fiercely, pierced him in the ribs. At the sight of his own blood, whose peculiar color, you remember, was offensive to him, the sword fell from Hook's hand, 
and he was at Peter's mercy. Now, cried all the boys, but with a magnificent gesture, Peter invited his opponent to pick up his sword. Hook did so instantly, but with a tragic feeling that Peter was showing good form. Hitherto, he had thought it was some fiend fighting him, but darker suspicions assailed him now. Pan, who and what art thou? he cried huskily. I'm youth, I'm joy, Peter answered at a venture. I'm a little bird that is broken out of the egg. This, of course, was nonsense, but it was proof to the unhappy hook that Peter did not know in the least who or what he was, which is the very pinnacle of good form. To it again, he cried despairingly. He fought now like a human flail, and every sweep of that terrible sword would have severed in twain any man or boy who obstructed it. But Peter fluttered round him as if the very wind it made blew him out of the danger zone. And again and again he darted in and pricked. Hook was fighting now without hope. That passionate breast no longer asked for life, but for one boon it craved, to see Peter show bad form before it was cold forever. Abandoning the fight, he rushed into the powder magazine and fired it. In two minutes, he cried, the ship will be blown to pieces. Now, now, he thought, true form will show. But Peter issued from the powder magazine with a shell in his hands and calmly flung it overboard. What sort of form was Hook himself showing? Misguided man though he was, we may be glad, without sympathizing with him, that in the end he was true to the traditions of his race. The other boys were flying round him now, flouting, scornful, and he staggered about the deck, striking up at them impotently. His mind was no longer with them. It was slouching in the playing fields of long ago, or being sent up to the headmaster for good, or watching the wall game from a famous wall. And his shoes were right, and his waistcoat was right, and his tie was right, and his socks were right. James Hook, thou not wholly unheroic figure, farewell, for we have come to his last moment." Seeing Peter slowly advancing upon him through the air with dagger poised, he sprang upon the bulwarks to cast himself into the sea. He did not know that the crocodile was waiting for him, for we purposefully stopped the clock that this knowledge might be spared him, a little mark of respect from us at the end. He had one last triumph, which I think we need not grudge him. As he stood on the bulwark, Looking over his shoulder at Peter, gliding through the air, he invited him with a gesture to use his foot. It made Peter kick instead of stab. At last, Hook had got the boon for which he craved. Bad form, he cried jeeringly, and went content to the crocodile. Thus perished James Hook. Seventeen, slightly sang out, but he was not quite correct in his figures. Fifteen paid the penalty for their crimes that night, but two reached the shore. Starkey to be captured by the Redskins, who made him nurse for all their papooses, a melancholy come-down for a pirate. And Smee, who henceforth wandered about the world in his spectacles, making a precarious living by saying he was the only man that James Hook had feared. Wendy, of course, had stood by, taking no part in the fight, though watching Peter with glistening eyes. But now that all was over, she became prominent again. She praised them equally, and shuddered delightfully when Michael showed her the place where he had killed one, 
and then she took them into Hook's cabin and pointed to his watch, which was hanging on a nail. It said, half past one. The lateness of the hour was almost the biggest thing of all. She got them to bed in the pirate's bunks pretty quickly, you may be sure, all but Peter, who strutted up and down the deck, until at last he fell asleep by the side of Long Tom. He had one of his dreams that night, and cried in his sleep for a long time, and Wendy held him tightly. Chapter 16 The Return Home By three bells that morning, they were all stirring their stumps, for there was a big sea running, and Tootles, the bosun, was among them, with a rope's end in his hand and chewing tobacco. They all donned pirate clothes cut off at the knee, shaved smartly, and tumbled up with a true nautical roll in hitching their trousers. It need not be said who was the captain. Nibs and John were the first and second mate. There was a woman aboard. The rest were tars before the mast and lived in the forecastle. Peter had already lashed himself to the wheel, but he piped all hands and delivered a short address to them, said he hoped they would do their duty like gallant hearties, but that he knew they were the scum of Rio and the Gold Coast, and if they snapped at him, he would tear them. The bluff, strident words struck the note sailors understood, and they cheered him lustily. Then a few sharp orders were given, and they turned the ship around and nosed her for the mainland. Captain Pan calculated, after consulting the ship's chart, that if this weather lasted, they should strike the Azores about the 21st of June, after which it would save time to fly. Some of them wanted it to be an honest ship, and others were in favor of keeping it a pirate. But the captain treated them as dogs, and they dared not express their wishes to him, even in a round robin. Instant obedience was the only safe thing. Slightly got a dozen for looking perplexed when told to take soundings. The general feeling was that Hook was honest just now to lull Wendy's suspicions, but that there might be a change when the new suit was ready, which, against her will, she was making for him out of some of Hook's wickedest garments. It was afterwards whispered among them that on the first night he wore this suit he sat long in the cabin with Hook's cigar holder in his mouth and one hand clenched, all but the forefinger, which he bent and held threateningly aloft, like a hook. Instead of watching the ship, however, we must now return to that desolate home from which three of our characters had taken heartless flight so long ago. It seems a shame to have neglected number 14 all this time. And yet, we may be sure that Mrs. Darling does not blame us. If we had returned sooner to look with sorrowful sympathy at her, she would probably have cried, "'Don't be silly! What do I matter? Do go back and keep an eye on the children!' So long as mothers are like this, their children will take advantage of them, and they may lay to that. Even now we venture into that familiar nursery only because its lawful occupants are on their way home. We are merely hurrying on in advance of them to see that their beds are properly aired and that Mr. and Mrs. Darling do not go out for the evening. We are no more than servants. Why on earth should their beds be properly aired, seeing that they left them in such a thankless hurry? Would it not serve them jolly well right if they came back and found that their parents were spending the weekend in the country? It would be the moral lesson they have been in need of ever since we met them. But if we contrived things in this way, Mrs. Darling would never forgive us. One thing I should like to do immensely, and that is to tell her in the way authors have that the children are coming back, that indeed they will be here on Thursday week. This would spoil so completely the surprise to which Wendy and John and Michael are looking forward. 
They've been planning it out on the ship. Mother's rapture, father's shout of joy. Nana's leap through the air to embrace them first, when what they ought to be prepared for is a good hiding. How delicious to spoil it all by breaking the news in advance, so that when they enter grandly, Mrs. Darling may not even offer Wendy her mouth, and Mr. Darling may exclaim pettishly, "'Dash it all, here are those boys again!' However, we should get no thanks, even for this. We were beginning to know Mrs. Darling by this time, and may be sure that she would upbraid us for depriving the children of their little pleasure." "'But, my dear madam, it's ten days till Thursday week, "'so that by telling you what's what, we can save you ten days of unhappiness.' "'Yes, but at what cost? "'By depriving the children of ten minutes of delight?' "'Oh, well, if you look at it that way. "'What other way is there in which to look at it?' "'You see, the woman had no proper spirit. "'I had meant to say extraordinarily nice things about her, "'but I despise her, and not one of them will I say now.' She does not really need to be told to have things ready, for they are ready. All the beds are aired, and she never leaves the house. And observe, the window is open. For all the use we are to her, we might well go back to the ship. However, as we are here, we may as well stay and look on. That is all we are, lookers-on. Nobody really wants us. So let us watch and say jaggy things, in the hope that some of them will hurt. The only change to be seen in the night nursery is that between nine and six the kennel is no longer there. When the children flew away, Mr. Darling felt in his bones that all the blame was his for having chained Nana up, and that from first to last she had been wiser than he. Of course, as we have seen, he was quite a simple man. Indeed, he might have passed for a boy again if he'd been able to take his baldness off. But he also had a noble sense of justice and a lion's courage to do what seemed right to him and having thought the matter out with anxious care after the flight of the children, he went down on all fours and crawled into the kennel. To all Mrs. Darling's dear invitations to him to come out, he replied sadly but firmly, No, my own, this is the place for me. In the bitterness of his own remorse, he swore that he would never leave the kennel until his children came back. Of course, this was a pity, but whatever Mr. Darling did, he had to do in excess— "'otherwise he soon gave up doing it. "'And there never was a more humble man "'than the once proud George Darling, "'as he sat in the kennel of an evening "'talking with his wife of their children "'and all their pretty ways. "'Very touching was his deference to Nana. "'He would not let her come into the kennel, "'but on all other matters "'he followed her wishes implicitly. "'Every morning the kennel was carried, "'with Mr. Darling in it, "'to a cab which conveyed him to his office, "'and he returned home in the same way at six. Something of the strength of character of the man who will be seen if we remember how sensitive he was to the opinion of others, this man whose every movement now attracted surprised attention. Inwardly he must have suffered torture, but he preserved a calm exterior, even when the young criticized his little home, and he always lifted his hat courteously to any lady who looked inside. It may have been quixotic, but it was magnificent." Soon the inward meaning of it leaked out, and the great heart of the public was touched. Crowds followed the cab, cheering it lustily. Charming girls scaled it to get his autograph. Interviews appeared in the better class of papers, and society invited him to dinner and added, Do come in the kennel. On that eventful Thursday week, Mrs. Darling was in the night nursery awaiting George's return home, a very sad-eyed woman. 
Now that we look at her closely and remember the gaiety of her in the old days, all gone now just because she's lost her babes, I find I won't be able to say nasty things about her after all. If she was too fond of her rubbishy children, she couldn't help it. Look at her in her chair where she's fallen asleep. The corner of her mouth where one looks first is almost withered up. Her hand moves restlessly on her breast as if she had a pain there. Some like Peter best, and some like Wendy best, but I like her best. Suppose, to make her happy, we whisper to her in her sleep that the brats are coming back. They are really within two miles of the window now, and flying strong, but all we need whisper is that they are on the way. Let's. It's a pity we did it, for she's started up, calling their names, and there's no one in the room but Nana. Oh, Nana, I dreamt my dear ones had come back. Nana had filmy eyes, but all she could do was put her paw gently on her mistress's lap, and they were sitting together thus when the kennel was brought back. As Mr. Darling puts his head out to kiss his wife, we see that his face is more worn than of yore, but has a softer expression. He gave his hat to Liza, who took it scornfully, for she had no imagination, and was quite incapable of understanding the motives of such a man. Outside, the crowd who had accompanied the cab home were still cheering, and he was naturally not unmoved. "'Listen to them,' he said. "'It is very gratifying.' "'Lots of little boys,' sneered Liza. "'There were several adults today,' he assured her with a faint flush, "'that when she tossed her head he had not a word of reproof for her. "'Social success had not spoiled him. "'It had made him sweeter. "'For some time he sat with his head out of the kennel, "'talking with Mrs. Darling of this success, "'and pressing her hand reassuringly "'when she said she hoped his head would not be turned by it.' "'But if I had been a weak man,' he said. "'Good heavens, if I had been a weak man!' "'And, George,' she said timidly, "'you are as full of remorse as ever, aren't you?' "'Full of remorse as ever, my dearest. "'See my punishment living in a kennel!' "'But it is a punishment, isn't it, George? "'You're sure you're not enjoying it?' "'My love!' "'You may be sure she begged his pardon, "'and then, feeling drowsy, he curled round in the kennel. "'Won't you play me to sleep?' he asked, "'on the nursery piano.' and as she was crossing to the day nursery, he added thoughtlessly, "'And shut that window. I feel a draught.' "'George, never ask me to do that. The window must always be left open for them. Always! Always!' Now it was his turn to beg her pardon, and she went into the day nursery and played, and soon he was asleep. And while he slept, Wendy and John and Michael flew into the room. "'Oh, no!' We have written it so, because that was the charming arrangement planned by them before we left the ship. But something must have happened since then, for it's not they who have flown in. It's Peter and Tinkerbell. Peter's first words tell all. Quick, Tink, he whispered. Close the window. Bar it. That's right. Now you and I must get away by the door, and when Wendy comes, she'll think her mother has barred her out, and she will have to go back with me. Now I understand what had hitherto puzzled me. Why, when Peter had exterminated the pirates, he did not return to the island and leave Tink to escort the children to the mainland. This trick had been in his head all the time. Instead of feeling that he was behaving badly, he danced with glee. Then he peeped into the day nursery to see who was playing. He whispered to Tink, It's Wendy's mother. She's a pretty lady, but not so pretty as my mother. Her mouth is full of thimbles, but not so full as my mother's was. Of course, 
He knew nothing whatever about his mother, but he sometimes bragged about her. He did not know the tune, which was Home Sweet Home, but he knew it was saying, Come back, Wendy, 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 and he cried exultantly, You'll never see Wendy again, lady, for the window is barred. He peeped in again to see why the music had stopped, and now he saw that Wissus Darling had laid her head on the box, and that two tears were sitting on her eyes. She wants me to unbar the window, thought Peter, but I won't, not I. He peeped again, and the tears were still there, or another two had taken their place. She's awfully fond of Wendy, he said to himself. He was angry with her now for not seeing why she could not have Wendy. The reason was so simple. I'm fond of her too. We can't both have her, lady. But the lady would not make the best of it, and he was unhappy. He ceased to look at her, but even then she would not let him go. He skipped about and made funny faces, but when he stopped it was just as if she were inside him, knocking. Oh, all right, he said at last, and gulped. Then he unbarred the window. Come on, Tink, he cried, with a frightful sneer at the laws of nature. We don't want any silly mothers. And he flew away. Thus, Wendy and John and Michael found the window open for them after all, which, of course, was more than they deserved. They alighted on the floor, quite unashamed of themselves, and the youngest one had already forgotten his home. John, he said, looking around him doubtfully, I think I've been here before. Of course you have, you silly. There's your old bed. So it is, Michael said, but not with much conviction. I say, cried John, the kennel, and he dashed across to look in it. Perhaps Nana's inside it, Wendy said. But John whistled. Hollo, he said. There's a man inside it. It's father, exclaimed Wendy. Let me see father, Michael begged eagerly, and he took a good look. Oh, he's not so big as the pirate I killed, he said, with such frank disappointment that I am glad Mr. Darling was asleep. It would have been sad if those had been the first words he heard his little Michael say. Wendy and John had been taken aback somewhat at finding their father in the kennel. Surely, said John, like one who had lost faith in his memory, he used not to sleep in the kennel. John, Wendy said falteringly, perhaps we don't remember the old life as well as we thought we did. A chill fell upon them and served them right. It's very careless of mother, said that young scoundrel, John, not to be here when we come back. It was then that Mrs. Darling began playing again. It's mother, cried Wendy, peeping. So it is, said John. Then are you not really our mother, Wendy? asked Michael, who was surely sleepy. Oh, dear, exclaimed Wendy, with her first real twinge of remorse. It was quite time we came back. Let us creep in, John suggested, and put our hands over her eyes. But Wendy, who saw that they must break the joyous news more gently, had a better plan. Let us all slip into our beds and be there when she comes in, just as if we'd never been away. And so, when Mrs. Darling went back to the night nursery to see if her husband was asleep, all the beds were occupied. The children waited for her cry of joy, but it did not come. She saw them, but she didn't believe they were there. 
You see, she saw them in their beds so often in her dreams that she thought this was just the dream hanging around her still. She sat down in the chair by the fire, where in the old days she had nursed them. They could not understand this, and a cold fear fell upon all three of them. "'Mother!' Wendy cried. "'That's Wendy,' she said, but still she was sure it was the dream. "'Mother!' "'That's John,' she said. "'Mother!' cried Michael. He knew her now. "'That's Michael,' she said, and she stretched out her arms for the three little selfish children they would never envelop again. "'Yes, they did!' They went round Wendy and John and Michael, who had slipped out of bed and run to her. "'George! George!' she cried when she could speak, and Mr. Darling woke to share her bliss, and Nana came rushing in. There could not have been a lovelier sight, but there was none to see it, except the little boy who was staring in at the window. He had had ecstasies innumerable that other children can never know, but he was looking through the window— at the one joy from which he must be forever barred. Radio Read-Along is a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network, featuring weekly episodes from the world's best stories. Want to listen ahead? Find this entire novel inside the Pelican Society at www.pelicansociety.com. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, happy reading, everyone. <laughs>